So I just want to thank you all for coming along this evening. It's uh, good to be joining you again tonight because although I'm now based in Aotearoa, New Zealand and calling in from land that's traditionally um, taken care of by the local Maori people, specifically the Ngāti Whātua or Orake tribe, I have spent quite a bit of time in Barry. As you may have heard, I used to be on staff at IMS for about seven years, and I have been to your centre once before. I was graciously hosted by Hal, and I've also given an online talk. So it's lovely to be back here with your community and to see a few familiar faces. So thank you for joining me. So this evening, as you may know, the title of the talk is finding moments of ease in the midst of it all. And just to acknowledge, there are a few assumptions in that title. So one is the assumption that being in the midst of it all is not an experience of ease for most of us. In other words, that ease is something that's not always available. Now, I don't know what's happening in any of your lives specifically, but I teach in quite a few different places around the world. And even though I'm meeting with people in various countries, it's surprising in some ways just how common our challenges are. So there's the global COVID pandemic, of course, together with the intense social societal injustice that's being exacerbated in most societies. And then there's an ongoing and worsening climate crisis. And that's all on top of or underneath whatever's happening in your own everyday lives. The usual, perhaps, work pressure or financial stress, relationship issues, health challenges, family problems. So my basic assumption is that most people right now, including me, are not experiencing an abundance of ease. But I want to check, is that true for you? Is anyone here consistently abiding in ease and well-being from the minute you wake up until you go to bed at night? Anybody? So I'm not seeing any raised hands, and so I'm guessing that this is a self-selected group, and perhaps those people who are abiding in ease are so relaxed and so chill that they just forgot to log on to this session this evening. And those of you who are here, hopefully, will find some relevance in what I'm sharing. So, as I was anticipating, based on my own life and the various people I meet in sanghas around the world, there's a lot going on. And that's why in the title of this talk, I mentioned moments of ease. Because unfortunately, many of us tend to bring often an unrealistic, even idealistic attitude to our Dharma practice and to believe that somehow no matter what is going on in our lives, we should be able to just flow with it all, rest in perfect equanimity. And then if we can't do that, if we do get reactive, exhausted, depressed, we can easily blame ourselves for not being good enough or blame our Dharma practice for not working. And so that's very common conditioning, and I'll come back to that later in the talk. For now, what I'd like to do is just to explore this problem of non-ease, of unease or dis-ease, in a little bit more detail. 
using a template that most of you are probably familiar with, and that's the outline from the Buddha's teachings of the Four Noble Truths. So as you may know, he borrowed this template, if you like, from the medical healers of his day as a four-part approach to healing. Not so much a physical disease, but existential disease or unease. So the first step is to identify the problem, identify the dis-ease, the suffering or the dukkha. And in terms of this talk, it's the dukkha of not being at ease, which often shows up as feeling busy, feeling pressured, feeling burdened, having too much to do, not enough time to do it in, not enough support, and just generally a sense of overwhelm. Again, does that resonate with people? Is that at times what you experience? Most people, probably yes. So now we've identified what the issue is, following the Buddha's approach, the next step is to work out what is the cause of this non-ease. And there are a couple of levels we can explore here. The first is our own personal contributions to that feeling of being overwhelmed. So we can investigate what aspects of our personality, of our individual conditioning, might be contributing to this. So some of us have the tendency just to try to do way too much, way too much, driven by fear perhaps of missing out, or wanting to feel needed or important. And so we can have that tendency just to cram our calendars full and to race from one thing to the next to the next without a break. Others of us are just naturally oriented towards helping other people, but we tend to get over-involved or take on too much, and it ends up costing us, depleting us. Other people are terrified about what they might discover if they stopped, even for a moment, and had to experience any of the underlying emotions that they might be desperately trying to avoid through these patterns of overwork and constant busyness. Now, even if those particular patterns don't sound familiar to you, there are many more habits and patterns and defenses that could be feeding into this non-ease. So it's worth taking some time at some point to explore these, maybe with a Dharma friend or a teacher, just to see if you can get clearer about any personal, maybe family conditioning that might be contributing to that momentum of feeling overworked, overbusy, overwhelmed. And then the second level that's often underneath, or you could say around that individual patterning, is our collective or societal conditioning. And this can be incredibly strong. So I think most of us here live in capitalist societies, and capitalism rewards productivity above everything else. And it tends to instill competitive and individualistic values that generally tend to reinforce a sense of disconnection, disconnection from each other and disconnection from the natural world that we're part of. And that's very clear for me now, being in this hotel room in quarantine. No opening windows, 15 stories above the ground, fully air-conditioned, surrounded by all these little technological beeps and lights and 
everything's kind of plastic and synthetic, so very disconnected from the natural world. So we can easily forget that we are natural organisms. We are flesh and blood beings. And we have sensitive human bodies, sensitive human hearts, sensitive human minds. And we forget this, and instead we can have this tendency to relate to ourselves as if we were machines or robots that should be able to just keep performing the next task, the next, the next, the next, the next, without any real rest. And when we lose that connection with our true nature, and we punish ourselves with those unrealistic expectations of what we should be able to do, should be able to get, should be able to achieve, no matter what else is going on in our lives, it's no wonder that so many people are really struggling with anxiety, with burnout, with overwhelm. Okay, so now we have perhaps some sense of some of the causes of this unease or non-ease. We get to the good stuff. We get to bring in the lens of the third noble truth, which acknowledges that freedom from suffering is possible. So in this case, ease is possible, or at least moments of ease are possible, no matter what is going on in our lives. Now, just to be clear, the ease that I'm talking about here isn't the ease of just maybe blobbing out on the couch and binge-watching TV. It's not the ease of being on vacation in a resort somewhere, if that was even possible. Those things might provide moments of escape, temporary relief but when the TV show is over or the vacation ends we're right back where we started instead the ease that we're aiming for here is an inner ease you could say it's a heart quality of spaciousness of flow of acceptance of resilience which are all aspects of what the Buddha referred to as equanimity balance, peace. And in many ways, all of his teachings and practicing practices are aiming towards that equanimity. Okay, so given that ease is possible, how do we find it? And this question brings in the fourth noble truth. And this one invites us to set up the conditions that support more ease. Now, obviously, it's not enough just to wish that we weren't so busy or stressed or exhausted, because if that was all it took, that's what we would do. What we do need to do is make changes that will help us to release that same busyness, stress, exhaustion. So the first step of this process is one I've already touched into, and that's getting clearer about what we're doing to ourselves by bringing more mindfulness to the overall patterns of how we're behaving, acting, reacting. So those patterns perhaps on the longer time scale, but also to bring that same mindfulness to a more moment-to-moment level so that we can start to recognize the building up of tension, of stress, distress throughout the day so that we can keep de-escalating it before it gets too intense. Because as you know, once it gets too much of a grip on us, all of those stress hormones start going and it takes a long time to come back from that. 
So in my own life experience, this I experience this building up of stress as having a kind of pushing forward momentum to to pressure that drives me to go faster and faster and faster unless I can find ways of putting the brakes on it. So I think of this process as being like putting speed bumps in the road. Now, I couldn't remember. Do you have speed bumps in the U.S.? You know, those traffic calming things? Yeah. And you call them speed bumps? Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. That we put them in across the road to help to slow the traffic. And so what I'm trying to do with that inner pressure that keeps pushing me to speed up is to use whatever tools I can to calm, to de-escalate that busyness. And one of the most powerful tools, the most effective speed bumps is, as you can probably guess, regular meditation practice. Having said that, as most of you have probably experienced, what's one of the first things that goes when we're feeling under pressure? Anyone? I'm guessing regular meditation practice. Again, that's true for me. It's very easy for that daily sitting to fall away because so many other things feel too urgent, too pressing, too crucial. So if you notice that, I invite you to challenge that belief and even to experiment with a statement that I heard a few years ago now. That statement says, if you're too busy to meditate, meditate more. Now, apparently that's based on a Zen saying, you should sit in meditation for 20 minutes a day, unless you're too busy, and then you should sit for an hour. So we're pointing to this paradox that the busier we are, the more we need meditation. And I first heard this uh, at a time in my life when I had mistakenly taken on way too many commitments, and I was drowning, I was desperate to work out how to cope with that situation. I was so desperate that I was even willing to experiment with that statement. If you're too busy to meditate, meditate more. Now, initially, it had sounded ridiculous. And at that time, I was already sitting in the morning and the evening. But I thought, well, this is pretty intense. Let me give it a try. So I decided to add in a third sitting, just a shorter one in the middle of the day. I was very skeptical. But to my amazement, the first time I tried it, I did the sitting, I got up, and that afternoon I got through everything that I needed to do. It seemed quite miraculous. The second day, though, I had an even longer list of things that needed my attention. And I found myself thinking, no, you can't. You've got so much on, you can't do it. But I overrode that habit, and I sat down anyway. And again, the same thing happened. I got up, I got everything done that needed doing. This went on for a whole week, and every time I had that battle, no, you're too busy, you can't, shut up, do it, same experience. It was really quite incredible. Each time I did that extra meditation, it felt like it opened up more space in the day, and it de-escalated that anxiety, which was actually frittering away a lot of my energy. And so when I did come to do what I needed to do, I was more fully available for it. 
Now, I'm not saying that that extra meditation, if you choose to, has to be 30 or 45 minutes, or even that your regular meditation has to be that long. Maybe just 10 minutes, twice or three times a day. Even that much can act as that metaphorical speed bump and slow down the busyness. Again, having said that, there's a second challenge of trying to meditate when we do feel to be super busy, stressed and under pressure. And that's usually we want our meditation to give us a kind of a break. And we often bring a very unrealistic expectation to our practice that we should be able to just live our lives at 100 miles an hour and then sit down to meditate and the mind will just magically stop thinking, stop worrying, stop planning and we'll sit in deep samadhi, deep peace for the entire time. And if that doesn't happen, and instead we're sitting tormented by all of that mental agitation, then we can think, well, I can't meditate, I'm wasting my time, or meditation just doesn't work. Now it's true that it is not easy to sit still with an active racing mind. And so I just encourage you, instead of assessing the value of that meditation by how much ease and peace we get, it's usually more helpful to recognize what are the other skillful states that are being developed there. So yes, we might not get ease and peace and calm, but just by staying there, even if it's just for 10 minutes, we're strengthening patience, we're strengthening persistence, We're strengthening steadiness and courage. You could say kindness and compassion, self-compassion. So let that in. Assess the meditation by those other qualities. And at the end of it, you might even just jot down on a piece of paper or in a notebook what you appreciated about having done that practice. Just like I did at the end of the meditation earlier, It can help us set up a positive feedback loop, make us feel more encouraged that the meditation is making a difference, even if it doesn't always feel pleasant in the moment. And this orientation to what's going well is super important because in the midst of a hectic life and because of those often perfectionistic tendencies, It's very easy for meditation to become just another chore, another duty, just one more thing that we should be checking off our to-do list and then feeling guilty when it doesn't happen. So as an antidote to all that, I often encourage people to focus on what they enjoy about the practice. Sometimes people even look at me like, what? Enjoy? Like it didn't even occur to them that practice could be enjoyable. So you might want to bring awareness to the mindset that you're bringing to this and to see if you can find even tiny moments that are pleasant. So again, I offer that in the meditation instructions. From time to time, you might see if you can find that subtle pleasantness of being present. And even right now in this moment, Can you sense into any of that? Perhaps you can connect with that subtle feeling of release in the out-breath and the feeling of softening and relaxing. Maybe you can find that now. 
Maybe there's a feeling of softness where the clothing is in contact with the skin. And there might be a very slight sense of pleasantness with that. Or maybe the temperature in the room is pleasant. Or maybe there's something else in your environment that you can just quietly enjoy. So it can be helpful just to take a moment to notice any physical or sense-based experiences that have this quality of pleasantness. And as you tune into them, let your awareness stay there. And you might find that they help to support a little more ease and calm. Okay, so maintaining a regular meditation practice is a very good foundation for being able to reconnect with moments of ease later in the day too. And we want to keep bringing in those informal moments of mindfulness throughout the day. And one particular area that it can be powerful to bring awareness to is in the transitions, the transitions between tasks or events that most of us go through multiple times a day. Now again, our dominant mainstream conditioning generally doesn't invite us to recognize transitions on any scale, big or small. As I said earlier, we're mostly programmed to just keep doing, 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 next, 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 next. But again, that goes against our organic nature. Just like everything else in nature, there are rhythms and cycles of action and rest. And if we keep overriding those cycles, we tend to just accumulate more and more stress until eventually we burn out or break down. So just in the context of an ordinary day, it can be interesting to try to bring more awareness to consciously completing just one task or action. And then take a moment to pause and to acknowledge what has just finished, what's just ended, before moving on to the next. So for example, when I finish a meeting on Zoom, and I'll do this when we end the call tonight, in the old days, I just click leave meeting and flick immediately to my email box or jump up to make a cup of tea. But now, when I come to the end of a meeting, whether it's with a group or an individual student, I click leave meeting, and then I just close my laptop for a moment. And I take one or two breaths, and just inwardly saying goodbye to the people who are on that meeting, letting it dissolve and then opening and going to whatever comes next. Now, in some ways, this is similar to a practice that I learned about when I was doing a Zen chaplaincy training a few years ago. And the trainers were talking about their experience as hospital chaplains, going from room to room and talking to many patients in a day. And one of them said that with each new patient, he would stand outside the door of their room and use the time that it took to sanitize his hands. In that time, he was also clearing his heart and his mind so that when he did cross the threshold into that new patient's room, he was empty of what had happened before and he could meet the next person more fully because he was refreshed. So when I heard that, I felt quite inspired by that practice of just honoring and respecting each patient. And I try to bring a small flavor of that when I meet with students online. 
Or even when I finish a phone call or finish my work day and start to make dinner. And those small moments to acknowledge transitions, they do bring a little more ease because we're fully completing one task before starting the next. Again, though, this is pretty counterintuitive to our multitasking culture. But it's also yet another way that modern life is not so healthy for our hearts and minds. So I recently read that uh, in terms of neuroscience, each time the brain switches its attention to something new, it releases a small dose of cortisol to help us to focus. Now, as you know, probably cortisol is a stress hormone. So when we're constantly jumping from website to website or from task to task, we're actually micro-dosing ourselves with stress hormones. It's no wonder that we would feel frazzled at the end of the day. So as an antidote to that, just to take one or two breaths between each new thing we do, it might help to offset the buildup of those stress hormones. And we think, can think of these as micro-pauses that we try to insert throughout the day. So we have micro-pauses. We can also be on the lookout for opportunities to build in slightly longer times of rest, refreshment, renewal, as often as we can to take time out to do nothing. Literally, to do nothing. And actually, this is a pretty radical practice because it goes against the grain of some of our deepest societal conditioning. Many of us have learned that we should be constantly productive, almost to justify our very existence, and that if we aren't producing, aren't doing, aren't achieving, we may as well be dead. So it can be an act of rebellion to resist that tyranny of constant productivity, even if it's just for a few moments, to allow ourselves to simply be. So as I was writing this talk, I wondered about doing an experiment and just, we'll do this hypothetically, not in actual reality, but imagine that I gave you five minutes at this point to get away from the screen and invited you to spend five minutes just doing something soothing and restful. Five whole minutes. What would you do? So a few examples I came up with and then I'll ask for yours. It's not quite night here, but I might go and look at the night sky, just stare at the stars for five minutes. Or if I had a cat, I might just stroke the cat's fur, feel them purr. Maybe I just lie down under a soft blanket and rest. Or give a partner a long hug. Or make myself a cup of hot tea and just watch the steam swirling from the surface of it. So I wonder, let's open it to you now. If you had five minutes now to do pretty much nothing, even though I'm saying do nothing, what would you do? What would you do that would be resting, restful, soothing? Anybody have any ideas? <clears throat> Say again? Drink water. Drink water, yeah. Feel that cooling, refreshing. Thank you. Make hot tea. 
make hot tea, yeah. Again, feeling the warmth of the cup and the nourishment, the refreshment. Anyone else? Go for a short walk. Yeah, even five minutes, and if possible, outside. Yeah, thank you. I go to my chair and look at my plants. Go to your chair and look at your plants. Beautiful indoor plants. Yeah, thank you. I would lie down on my couch and let my dogs just drape over me. Ah, lovely. Lie down on your couch and let your dogs just drape over you. Beautiful. So thank you for sharing those uh, options. Even just hearing them, I could feel this. Even just hearing them, I could feel this sense of uh, softening and opening. And it's possible that some of you may have heard some voices saying things like, "What a waste of time! What good would that do?" <laughs> Sounds pretty self-indulgent to me. She's just trying to turn us into couch potatoes. What if I did rest like that? I might like it too much. But no, I don't deserve to rest. Too many people depend on me. I can't give up on them. They wouldn't cope. I have to keep going. I have to keep going. I have to keep going. So this exercise, if you try it at home, you might notice some of that conditioning, some of those thoughts. And if you do, that's very powerful practice to get a sense of what gets in the way. This is a very important first step. And sometimes what we find under these habits of hyper-busyness, we might find a fear of all the emotions that might be lurking there, maybe just waiting to ambush us if there was even a moment of quiet or stillness. So, so far, I've mostly been talking about mindfulness as a support for finding ease. But in the short time that we have left, I'd like to at least touch in to another set of practices that can be so helpful here, and that's the four Brahma-Vihara qualities of metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Because together, these four are such powerful antidotes to all of those painful emotions that can come up when we allow ourselves to stop for a while. So they're antidotes to painful emotions, but in and of themselves, they also help to create more ease and spaciousness. Now, I could easily give a whole series of talks on these four, and I'm assuming most of you have some familiarity with them. But if it's of interest, you can find more talks on Dharma Seed by me, by plenty of other teachers. Tonight, I just want to highlight the quality of equanimity that I mentioned earlier. Equanimity being a very highly valued quality in the Buddha's teachings. And as you know, it's the last of these four Brahma-Vihara. Because in terms of this theme of finding ease amidst it all, equanimity is the capacity to stay somewhat steady and balanced through life's ever-changing circumstances ups and downs, the pleasures and pains, the rewards and challenges. So equanimity is a quality of balance, of inner resilience. And lately I've been thinking of equanimity as elasticity. 
So elasticity is that capacity to flex, to stretch, to return to shape. And just to say, although equanimity is the last of the four Brahmavihara, it's very common that people want to get there too quickly without having done the work that would allow a more genuine equanimity. So especially in the beginning, people might like the idea of staying steady and balanced. And so they try to force themselves into a kind of a false or faux equanimity. And to do that, they have to deny and repress their actual experience. And I name that because that was true in my own experience early on in my practice. I definitely had this tendency. And I, especially when I first heard these teachings on equanimity, I would try to force myself into some idea of what I thought that was supposed to look like. And it took quite a while to eventually realize that I wasn't fooling anyone, not even myself anymore. And then I had to go back to the basics and to start at the beginning of the whole Brahma-Vihara sequence, because I don't think that sequence is accidental. We need a foundation of metta, of basic kindness. And when we have that basic kindness in place, it's more possible to open to what is actually going on and to meet the painful challenges, the messy emotions that I've been trying to keep at bay through overwork and busyness, Instead, to meet those with genuine compassion and self-compassion. So as I learned to open to those underlying feelings, perhaps of grief or loneliness or despair and disconnection, fear, I learned to open to them in small doses so that they could be metabolized and integrated without overwhelming me as I'd feared. And then as that capacity for compassion got stronger, the habit of compulsive doing and frantic busyness released its grip. And we can start to find that the heart and the mind then more naturally experiences mudita, appreciative joy, which is the third Brahma-Vihara. This one tends not to get as much coverage, and I could and have given a whole series of talks on it, for now, just to say that appreciative joy is a quality that we can train in, again, by opening to the small pleasures that are available to us throughout the day, if we can learn how to recognize them and to fully let them in. Now again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, and because habitual busyness and speediness tends to disconnect us, from our capacity to notice small pleasures, many of us can benefit from practicing this as a skill, as a training. So to end this evening's talk, I thought to just take a few minutes to do that now, a little similar to what we did before, but just to invite you to take a few minutes of silence, and in that silence to tune in to anything in your experience that might register as subtly pleasant any of the five sense doors and also the mind. So maybe you're wearing a beautiful shawl that a friend gave you. Maybe you can hear your neighbor's children laughing next door. Maybe the dog or the cat is still draped across your lap. 
So let's take a couple of moments just to let the att attention become more internal and just tune in to what's pleasant in this moment. Again, we can think of this as crowdsourcing mudita. What did you notice? Anybody have anything they're willing to share? visual beauty of the altar and then the connection with the people who've given you the things on it feeling of warmth and connectedness lovely, thank you I have something unusual that might surprise you Joe you think of your hotel room as sterile um, it's been reminding me of the hotel I stayed in in Reykjavik in Iceland so it's bringing more pleasant visual for me than it most likely for you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So the pleasant, the visual stimulation bringing pleasant memories of a, I'm guessing, a pleasant vacation. Beautiful. Thank you. A few more. So we're making a kind of mosaic of mudita experiences here. Bruce, thank you. Sounds like you're able to tap into peace of mind, tap into equanimity, tap into gratitude. Those are kind of inner resources that you experience as pleasant. Lovely, thank you. So just to check in as you heard those different examples and as um, you connected with your own, one of the benefits of this is not just pleasantness for itself, but to notice 
What other skillful qualities of heart and mind do those subtly pleasant experiences make available? So you might notice perhaps in the body, as you hear this or as you connect with your own pleasant experience, maybe there's just a sense of softening or opening, maybe a little shift into a bit more ease or relaxation. You might notice in the heart and the mind maybe a little more openness or warmth or sense of connectedness, gratitude, appreciation. Maybe you're settling into more calm, steadiness, possibly even samadhi. So these are some of the benefits that can come from opening to what's pleasant and using those pleasant experiences to help soften into more ease, more steadiness, more stillness. And now from those, the true balance of equanimity. That equanimity that does help us to find moments of ease in the midst of it all. So that might be a good place to stop for now. Thank you so much for your attention. I'd like to take just a few minutes to see if there's any questions or reflections. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>